0: welcome back. This is episode 20 of season one in the Primrose Chronicles podcast series. As always, from this launch of this project, I'm your host and narrator, Marty Young. Assuming yet again the racontorial task in another wistful installment covering life in the middle of the 20th century, as one young lad grows into a teenager, changing and adjusting with the culture. Wow. That makes this project seem as far-reaching in importance as any work by Ken Burns, David McCullough, or Shelby Foote, which are three of my favorite. Trust me, it's not. But I hope it does strike a sentimental chord for the corner drugstore. I teased in the post on Primrose Chronicles Facebook page with a few pictures that I said had a connection with this week's offering. Time for the big reveal. The pictures were all items or individuals, Who had a connection with a local drugstore? The three pop bottles with the contents of Dr. Pepper, Coca Cola, and Pepsi Cola all had their beginnings at the hands of pharmacists in small local establishments who were trying to create elixirs that were tasty enough that their customers would be able to drink down the otherwise disgusting tonics. Dr. Pepper was the concoction mixed up by Charlie Alderton in Morrison's Old Country Store in Waco, Texas. The 23 on the bottle referred to the number of fruit flavorings combined in it, and the 10 to 4, like any medicinal prescription, referred to how often it should be taken daily. John Pemberton actually mixed the basic ingredients for making cocaine with a cola nut because of the medical qualities they believed it to hold. He added to it carbonated water to produce a beverage requested by many Atlantans, sick or not. You know it today as Coca-Cola. I'm told it's produced today sans cocaine, but its actual ingredients are kept under lock and key. A similar story is told of a brew originally called Brad's Drink, made by a North Carolina druggist named Caleb Bradham, who developed it in his corner store, renaming it several years later to reflect the benefit he believed would be derived by taking it for dyspepsia or indigestion and had a cola nut taste. Yep, it was Pepsi-Cola. And what about the personalities whose photos accompany that post on this episode? Well, Butch Cassidy bought his first revolver, a Colt 45, in a hardware store/slash drugstore in Bernal, Utah. Movie star Lana Turner was discovered by a talent agent in Schwab's drugstore on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California, and the rest is cinematic history. Lastly, In the iconic film, It's a Wonderful Life, young George Bailey was smacked upside the head by a distraught but drunken corner drugstore pharmacist, Mr. Gower. And into that historical narrative, I've chosen to add the location near and dear to my neighborhood, Steg's Drugs. And I'm entitling this episode 20, The Wonder of a Visit to the Corner Drugstore. You know, it seems like such an innocuous topic, not offering a lot of interest for listeners with Thousands of choices with which to curl up for a brief time of escape. And I must admit, I myself wondered about writing and sharing a full chapter of TPC to it. I guess we'll see once it drops. Folks will choose whether to download it or not. I only know that it was something I became fascinated with as I came to discover what the local pharmacy slash drugstore meant to its neighborhood and its residents, sick, infirmed, or healthy. I hope you'll continue to listen in. I think you'll discover that to be the case for you as well. For the families of Primrose and the streets immediately east and west of them, it was Stegs Drugs, easily recognized in conversation by single name like Elvis or Cher or Trump or Marty, one block west on 46th Street at the front of Marcy Village Apartments. In the 50s and 60s, most corner drugstores were family-owned, usually by the pharmacist who filled the prescriptions issued by family doctors while handling the sales and stocking of various and sundry items based on the interest, needs, and wants of his local customers. As I think back on the landscape of pharmacies in Northeast Indy before the rise of chain drug establishments, it seemed as if every few blocks on a main thoroughfare, there was a corner drug. As I traveled down 46th Street, my mind... To the east, there was also Norwaldo Drugs and a pharmacy whose name I don't remember at the Evanston intersection. To the west, Stiggs had no competition until you reached College Boulevard. But there, across from a full-service grocery was another drugstore. North and south on College, similar establishments sat at 42nd Street, 38th Street, both to the south, and north, there was one at 49th Street, Kessler Boulevard, and Broderville Avenue. And now to complete the memory circuit, there was 52nd Street, just north of Elementary School 91, and it held opportunities to get prescriptions filled and offered assorted other items secured for home and school. Let's see, at 52nd and Ralston, there was one. And then down to the east, there was one at Keystone and 52nd. And then down that busy boulevard to the south, we had Town & Country Drug at about 44th and Keystone. On the east side of that street, around the corner from Town & Country Bowl, it was in a strip mall along with a standard grocery, the DMV, and a Chinese restaurant. You know, thinking back, we certainly had our choices. Being family-owned, they each had the character of their proprietor. A couple of them were all business. By that, I mean the medical business. In addition to providing the medicinal needs the family practitioner may have indicated as the perfect remedy in a prescription, most of the shelves on aisles were devoted to medications not requiring a doctor's signature, but coming at a doctor's recommendation or at least the recommendation of a doty grandma for everything that might ail you. About the only other items in shelves were for recovery and home treatment. Crutches and braces and thermometers and bandages. Such an assortment Left little room for items that might bring in youth and children in to spend their allowances, and that was probably by design. The professionals therein considered their calling to be to the sick and the infirmed, period. Those enterprises catered only to the seriously in need of pharmaceutical services. The other drug stores, though, were more inclined to broaden their offerings so that they could also be the place to frequent for almost any basic home or personal need by the locals, medicinal or otherwise, especially if it was just on the spur of the moment. As a result, for most households, the closer the store, the better. And in our neighborhood, it was, yes, Stegs. As it related to me, it became a go-to through my upper elementary and junior high years, even into early high school, because it was only two blocks away. Easily reached on bicycle, quickly shopped, allowing me to often be back even before I was up again in our neighborhood athletic contest. And because I could either cut through Marcy Village garages or travel by sidewalk the entire way, I could make the trek right up until they closed, even into the darkness. Stags was where I headed when I was making a cigarette run or the like for mom and dad. At first, the Winstons were 20 cents and I kept the nickel. When inflation took the pack up to a quarter, I still got a nickel But unlike my later pizza delivery per unit stipend, it was a nickel regardless of the list length. In most of my trips to Stegg's, though, I was heading there for my own purposes. Primrose was a distance from Glendale Mall with its variety of shops and stores, and even Jubilee City, a large discount variety store, was more than a mile away. So Stegg's was our simple outpost for contact with the outside world. Actually, worlds, plural. Those worlds were multiple and varied, but Steggs had them. Of course, there was the world of medicine and treatment. We could carry a handwritten prescription to Doc Stegg himself for many years and have it filled, usually while you waited. Later, after he retired but kept the drugstore as an investment, Doc Adams came into the pharmacy and behind the glass wall, filling the same. Just like pharmacists today, though, I have no idea how they read the chicken scratching and medical abbreviations from local doctors that gave the name of the tablet or elixir to be dispensed, as well as the portion. But they both did, and they did it well. bit of trivia here. The letters Rx that designated prescription, or a doctor prescribed treatment, came from the first letters of a Latin phrase for a recipe to be taken. Interesting, huh? Further, one of the first chains of drugstores nationally were Rexall suggesting that they had prescriptions for everybody. That's clever too, huh? Stegs was not a branch of that chain. So I could take a prescription to the drug counter waiting for it, and if the pills were in stock, I would make a nickel for that run as well. Stegs shelves were well stocked with the items necessary from time to time, or in the case of the Youngs, all the time, for simpler ailments and injuries as well. I remember trips to the drugstore for Vicks products like VapoRub and cough syrup, castor oil and cod liver oil, St. Joseph's baby aspirin and the like. And if the need was for the treatment of injuries, cuts, and scrapes, they would be treated with methylate and band-aids, both of which were readily available. Now remember to blow on the wound as mom applied the orange disinfectant. Remember that too? There were also the hair care products, items for shaving and shampooing and soaping. And I guess the final component of that unique world were the items of personal health and hygiene. Because of the modesty of my parents, I was never asked to peruse those shelves. They always just said, we do need some other stuff, but we'll get it next time we're out. Those were all part of the world of pharmacy on the shelves immediately around the elevated medical supply office in the back center of the larger store. The other areas of our neighborhood drugstore were worlds unto themselves for a youth with or without coin in his pocket, but he was much more welcomed if his situation was the latter. As you face the medicine counter to the right and along the back wall was the world of periodical publications and paperbacks. There you would find racks of not only Louis L'Amour westerns, Agatha Christie mysteries, Harlequin romances and the like, but also open shelves of current newspapers, magazines and comic books. It was like a second library with a limited reading room opportunity. I'm pretty sure It was positioned so that the owner, druggist, could look down from the raised cubicle of apothecary jars and pill bottles and keep an eye on the young browsers of the illustrated and photographic offerings. We had several magazines that came directly to our home, courtesy of our mailman, Uncle Sam. Our subscriptions included Saturday Evening Post, Life, Look, Reader's Digest, and all of those were available to anybody who wanted to look through them. Then there was Mom's Reading Matter good housekeeping and better homes and gardens. And dad had his popular science and popular mechanics. While I was in scouts, I had boy's life all to myself. Nancy had calling all girls and all the younger kids shared Jack and Jill and highlights. You would think having a home cluttered with so many reading options, the back wall of the magazine shelves would offer no allure, but you would think wrong. New editions of many other magazines, none of which came to our house, were there for the surreptitious leaf-through between druggist glances. I say that because one of the pharmacist's duties was more as the owner than Druggist, and that was to shoo lookers away from the selections before they damaged the pages too much to be attractive for those who might actually purchase a magazine or two. The time of library hours in that aisle was dependent upon how busy Doc Stegg or Adams was filling requests from the bottles and jars behind them, properly labeling and bagging and handing them to waiting customers. They were as trusted as the local MDs, so they stayed busy. And as they stayed busy, we stayed browsing. Who knew there were so many magazines published solely for specific interests? My own perusing was usually in one of four areas. Sports, of which there was Sports Illustrated and Sporting News, the former for all the wide world of sports, and the latter the Bible for all details and statistics regarding baseball, football, and basketball dependent upon the season. For a long time, the vertical rack of comic books drew my attention. Not so much the cartoon variety of Disney characters from the movies and the local Saturday morning kid shows hosted by Cowboy Bob and Janie, I probably would watch them in the privacy of my home, but I couldn't be caught opening a copy of Donald Duck and Mickey in as public a location as the drugstore. So if I leafed through the comic book rack, my attention went to the DC Comics and the like of Superman, Batman, Aquaman, The Greens, both Lantern and Hornet, Justice League of America, and others. My buddies and I usually ended up buying one or two each, plopping down a dime or two, with all the purchases being different knowing that we'd trade with each other and be ready for the next delivery in a week or two as they were brought up to date. One selection I seemed to have a singular attraction to was the classic illustrated series. First, they were more expensive, 15 cents apiece, versus the others that were a dime. And they were just as the title suggested, comic book adaptations of famous literary works. They were generally action works appealing more to boys than girls, Titles that I remember included Three Musketeers and Robinson Crusoe and Around the World in 80 Days, but don't get me started. Wikipedia says there were 169 of them. Between the card game authors, through which I learned about 12 or 13 literary giants, each having four of their works highlighted on the cards, and the many issues of Classics Illustrated, I was eventually drawn to reading the actual novels. I learned early on, though, that the comic variety did not offer the depth of content that allowed me to use them as a means by which I fulfilled any literature reading assignment. I had to turn to Cliff Notes for that. I said there were four areas of print I was drawn to, and no, another was not Playboy and the other men's magazines. Doc Stegg did not stock them, and when Doc Adams finally did, they were behind the counter at the checkout with a cardboard across every part of the cover except the title. You had to go over to town and country drug by the bowling alley to find a magazine rack that had them out for anyone to skim, but they were right there inside the door so every adult in the neighborhood could see what was being read as they came in. Uh, that's what I was told, anyway. A third area was almost as mockable as getting caught by the buddies reading a Disney comic, and that was the magazines that contained the lyrics to top 40 hits. You know, if you listened to my last TPC episode, I was consumed by the playlists of rock and roll music, and in my desire to be the one in the know, I would quickly pick up a hit parader magazine or song lyrics magazine, find the words to songs I couldn't quite make out, commit them to some semblance of memory, and then wait for the opportunity at school the next day or week to be the all-knowing resource for musical poetry. Yes, I'll say it first, I was a particular kind of geek. The final area of the world of periodical print that I was drawn to, at least as far as my mom was concerned, was only slightly above those publications you could only find at Town & Country. It was the humor and satirical offerings of magazines like Mad and Cracked. Now, Cracked was an occasional browse, and actually, though, was only a knockoff imitation of the giant in that field. Mad Magazine. For me, Mad was always a flat-out monthly purchase. To be taken home and read, cover to cover and edge to edge, it was a monthly comic magazine filled with parodies, spoofs of current events, movies and TV shows, and even personalities in the news. Sadly, I've been told much of my current bent in humor Came from too steady a diet of Alfred E. Newman, the magazine's flop eared gap toothed, eternally smiling mascot. In fact, if my smart delicate comments turned too much toward my parents and mom in particular, I was forbidden from bringing the current issue of Mad Magazine into the house. That meant I had to keep it stashed at Bostler's house in his clubhouse until mom's ire blew over. Overall, mom thought that publication was totally without merit or decorum. And if she'd had her druthers, it would be stricken from my reading selections because, as she said, it's just dumb. Of course, she had the similar opinion of the Three Stooges, so what did she know? For me, it often took days to properly pore over the latest mad magazine. Regular features like Spy versus Spy, The Lighter Side Of, and The Mad Fold In, to say nothing about the special comic strips, taking pot shots at politics and politicians and culture in general. And then there were the little jokes printed throughout the pages in the normally blank top, bottom, and edges of their borders. They were the sources of many one-liners that got me into a lot of trouble in the long run. All of these offerings made up the world of periodicals at Stegs. A much more frequented region of most any drugstore was the soda fountain, and at Stegs, it was the counter and stools that sat to the immediate right as you walked in. It was the domain of two wonderful black ladies, Mamie and Martha, who took your orders, ran the grill and the deep fryer, operated the carbonated drink machines and its accompanied syrups, and the shake malt maker, all to perfection it really seemed. More than that, they offered conversation laughed at stupid jokes, and actually treated you like a customer, whether you had a nickel for a small Coke or almost 50 cents for a burger, fries, and a chocolate shake. And even if your pocket of change did not allow for the appropriate 10% tip, they welcomed you. The steaks counter was a special hangout in the years before we had our driver's licenses and motorized vehicles. And even after that milestone in our lives, we would sometimes pull up to the now- Adam's Drugs, just to get a Green River, vanilla Coke, or a plate of crinkle-cut french fries. special treat was a shake. It was made in a metal cup mixed on the Hamilton Beach mixer. To have it served in a clear glass topped with whipped cream and a cherry... And knowing that when you finished that, another half glass remained in the frosty aluminum container sitting on the counter until you asked for it at no extra charge, that was a wonderful realization. Sometimes our stop there was on our way to Arsenal Park or the Little League fields for a daytime pickup baseball game. Other times it was an evening organized game at the same fairgrounds fields from behind the stakes counter. Both Mamie and Martha were always ready to ask how it went, consoling in a loss, celebrating in a win. It was kind of our own age-appropriate cheers bar, where everybody knew our names, although without adult beverages. One final world came into the drugstore scene before I left junior high. Steggs expanded their variety of selections by stocking a section devoted to the high school set. In an attempt to lure the teen population that was now making its way to the record stores of Broad Ripple and Glendale and Meadows Malls for the most recent songs played on their stations and televised bandstand shows and weekend dance parties, drawing them back to the neighborhood shopping haunts, as it were. More and more of them were collecting the hits on 45s. I spoke of that in the last episode, but I mention it today because of how it affected the local drugstore. One day when we went in, we were told by Mamie that there was now, on the far opposite end of the store, a couple of vertical racks, similar to ones that held the comics, that now held a few copies of several of the newest pop musical offerings seven inches in diameter, down from the 12-inch size of the earlier decade, along with center openings now one and a half inches in diameter instead of the quarter-inch holes in the old 78s. Oh, and they were now played at 45 revolutions per minute. They were also made of a more durable vinyl than the previous brittle shellac. You can become a member of the fans of the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page and get the lowdown as to why the change in whole size and diameter, or you can just Google it. Anyway, at the World of Wax in the northeast corner of Stegs, I regularly checked out those musical offerings recorded by favorite popular artists. I got much of my early music diet met by the used 78s that I purchased for a nickel apiece from a friend of mom and dad's who had a number of jukeboxes in diners and drive-ins around town after they'd been played there for a couple of weeks. But I believe my first 45 was purchased at Steaks. It was The Miracles. You know of Smokey Robinson and the fame? Big hit on the R&B charts and a crossover into the mainstream. Think White. Top 40. It was shop around. I bought others there from time to time, but most I got cheaper at Jubilee City or up at Glendale for a wider selection and, of course, the arrival of the new LP albums. One recollection that I'm not that proud of sharing, but I'll do so, just to bring this thus far wistful remembrance to a sobering realization that I'm not your perfect bard, is the day I served as lookout for a heist that took place at Steggs, I'd begun to hang with a guy who was in my scout troop, yes, Boy Scouts, and in a future chapter, I will share how that vaunted and highly respected trainer of young men introduced me to many things that would have remained outside my kin for at least a few years in the future had I not joined it. Anyway, a guy from my grade who lived up on 52nd Street but was in my Scout troop 60 he and I decided to forego dropping into his neighborhood drugstore up at 52nd and Ralston and instead to travel down my way and into Steg's. In retrospect, there may have been some extenuating circumstances for us not visiting the 52nd Street establishment. We had made our way through the various sections of Stegland that interested us, the magazines and the soda counter, before ending up at the racks of 45s. My friend's apocryphal name for the sake of this narrative will be Eric Ross. Upon checking out the different record titles and jackets and comparing them to their rankings in the WIBC and WIFE Top 40 list taped to the wall behind it, I was ready to leave. When Eric said simply, and a little softly, I thought, Let me know if anyone is coming. Now, perhaps in fairness, the store had not done a good job of dissuading anyone from the activity Eric had in mind. The record racks were at the end of a wide shelf of items and not easily observed, but still. As I nervously watched for what seemed like an hour, but was probably just a few seconds, Eric had slipped a forty five under his jacket and began to walk out, me right behind him. I was about to become a juvenile delinquent, by association. I knew we'd be busted, but the die was cast. The deed was done, and I only hoped my mother would visit me in the big house. Eric walked out the front door. With a quick greeting to the cashier and a smile, I faked my intention to buy a candy bar across from the checkout counter. Then with great aplomb, I expressed my disappointment that they didn't have what I wanted. Every step closer to the door, I fully expected us to be stopped by the cashier, or worse, by Mr. Stegg himself. But they didn't, and we stepped through the door. Eric with his stolen contraband, and me with another loss of innocence. Even as we sauntered, I was ready to break into a full sprint, still anticipating a foot chase from a store employee, or having the Indianapolis Police Department pull up beside me in one of their squad cars, lights flashing to take us in. But none of that happened either. And as we continued our stroll, Eric reached inside his jacket, pulled out the forty-five he had lifted so casually, and offered it to me. It was Sam Cook's hit, Chain Gang. Ironic, huh? At least he had good taste in musical selections. But in truth, he didn't even want it. He just wanted to see if he could. And I began to see why he might not be welcome in the store near his home. I did not accept his offering of friendship. We parted ways at Primrose, me heading south and Eric heading north. I made up reasons not to go anywhere else with him in the next days and weeks. Over time, the friendship cooled to mere acquaintances. It wasn't long after that that I also left scouts. Not because of Eric, but it could be said I was glad that I didn't have to feign liking him for the sake of his rank and position in the troop. I guess I should admit that my experience with crime and lack of desire to continue down its path was not because I was a paragon of virtue. It was mostly because the very thought of getting caught scared me spitless. So I guess there's something to be said for that deterrent. I hesitated going back to stakes for a while, but over time I did return. And through my junior high years, my corner drugstore experiences were uneventful and, for the most part, more of the same as I had previously encountered without criminal activity. And thus ends this narrative, however abrupt it might seem. For those of you of my age and era, I hope your thoughts have been turned back to those simple days before box stores and malls where the local druggist centered the needs of most households around a single offering, medicines and remedies, but could be a resource and a consultant for most everything we needed at the house. For all of you who have no recollection of such places, who remember nothing but malls and big box stores, I know you may feel even a little sorry for us with our limited opportunities, but be assured it was good. We didn't know any better, we had nothing to compare it to, so though we were inconvenienced by sometimes a unavailability, we learned to do without. Anyway, I think I'll wrap up this telling to say thank you for listening in on what could be considered a rather mundane topic, the corner drugstore. I really hope this telling rose above that level for you. I'll be back next week with a look back at a more exciting venue, Riverside Amusement Park. A trip there out at 38th and White River Parkway was an end to summer beginning a fall event for the Young Clan annually. So I guess it's time. Before that, though, I think I'll try to recreate a cherry phosphate or a lime Ricky. I know I can whip up a vanilla Coke. Then I'll just sit back and think gratefully I didn't get sent up the river and was instead allowed to continue in my years growing up on Primrose Lake. Err, Primrose Avenue. Blessings.